This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up, I had Tom Greenwell join me to talk about his article in Inside Story, Were Unions the Victims of Their Own Success? We discussed the Change the Rules campaign being led by the ACTU. Then I had with me James Watson, Professor at the University of Queensland and Director of the Science and Research Initiative at the Wildlife Conservation Society, talk about the article he has co-written with fellow colleagues, One Third of Global Protected Land is Under Intense Human Pressure. It's published in Science Journal. Then I had author and zoologist Dr. Danielle Claude join me to talk about her new book, The Wasp and the Orchid, The Remarkable Life of Australian Naturalist Edith Coleman. And finally, I had National Gallery of Australia curator of photography Anne O'Hare join me to talk about the Diane Arbus American Portraits exhibition, currently showing at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art. Yes, you are tuned to 3 Triple R FM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And I uh, said before the break, I have a great guest coming up and here he is. I have with me Tom Greenwell, who is a Canberra-based author and teacher doing one of those very important jobs, teaching. And uh, he has written an article for Inside Story, which is an online publication uh, that you can easily check out at insidestory.org.au and he's written a piece that's called Were Unions the Victims of Their Own Success? It's certainly intriguing, isn't it, uh, that one could be a victim of one's success, uh, but that is actually the case. In You may have noticed that there was a big protest in Melbourne, I believe it was last week, and it's called Change the Rules, which is a campaign led by the, um, the Australian Council of Trade Unions. Uh, the Secretary, Sally McManus, is out there pounding the pavement front and centre, talking about the fact that Australians' right to strike is basically dead. Uh, and we're going to talk about whether that is the case and uh, just what's happening. So I'd love to welcome now Tom Greenwell. Hi, Tom. Hi, Amy. How are you going? Good, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. How's Canberra in a Senate Estimates week? Uh, it's a bit chilly. It's a yeah? bit chilly, but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, we're getting by. That's good. There's plenty of um, excellent entertainment to live stream from the Parliament House website if anyone (laughs) is so inclined. Now, let's head to your article. Um, I was really intrigued by the headline and then when I read through it, I was shocked to um, understand just how limited and restricted the right to strike is now. Um, I can't even believe that that's the case. But let's just set the scene for this issue because every week um, it comes up. We we generally talk about the lack of wage growth in Australia. It's really it's at an all time low. And you you write that the wages share of national income hasn't been this low in half a century. And you go on to say uh, that uh, Tim Colbatch pointed out. In the previous two years, just 28% of the increase in national income went to wage and salary earners, while 49% had gone to increased corporate profits. I mean, this is pretty stark, isn't it? And we haven't seen any movement um, in that wage growth for quite a while. And it's interesting to note that... uh, the Treasurer in his latest budget has suggested that there will somehow be a miraculous turnaround and we will see uh, wages growth increase substantially. Now, what do you, uh, I guess, perceive to be the 
the kind of main drivers behind this lack of wages growth? Right, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The whole the budget is predicated on uh, a, a substantial increase in wages and there's really, um, and the return to surplus is predicated on that and there's little evidence that that's happening or is going to happen. I think the um, the causes of, of low wage, of this kind of really, this period of really flat wage growth are complicated um, and, and, and involve a number of factors, but... Clearly amongst them are the kind of legal settings that mean that it is very, very difficult for workers to take industrial action. And when you take away workers' ability to withdraw their labour, you take away much of their bargaining power. So um, a really important factor um, is this um, difficulty that workers face in striking. So, you know, people, when they when we talk about the, the change in our culture around taking strike action, people often refer back to the 1970s, um, a very militant period. But even since the um, 1990s, like in the 1990s, um, there are about 100 days lost to strike action per 1,000 workers. It's now down to about a dozen so even the last kind of uh, 20 years or so, there's been this massive decline uh, in, in industrial action. And, you know, if, if workers cannot sit down at the bargain, bargaining table and ultimately be able to um, ha- have the leverage of saying, well, we can walk away and we'll walk off the job, um, it stands to reason that they're not going to be able to get the, um, the, the, the results that they want. And, and as you say, you know, the... We haven't seen the wages share of national income this low for half a century. Mm. I mean, you, when I think about unions and what they were actually established to do and the history around um, workers and even the history around Labor Day, I mean, people were fighting for fair conditions, um, for time off, for, for holidays, for breaks, paid sick leave. And unions, I guess, are a collective that are supposed to, I guess, provide strength in numbers. Um, and we've seen slowly the, those numbers of people joining unions or being part of unions decline, but they still are a significant player in workplace relations. So I guess... Um, even historically, although unions were perhaps more prominent in that time you're talking about, um, do you believe they still have a significant um, role to play despite, I mean, let, we'll get to the, the workplace laws in a second, but just in terms of their, their size and, um, and importance at the moment, how much do you think that they play a, a substantial role or could play a substantial role in workplace relations? Oh, I think they play a massively important role. I mean, um, you're absolutely right. There's been a, a very significant and worrying decline in union membership um, to around, you know, from around one in every two workers to something like 16% of workers who are who are members of a union. Um, but still, there's a, a very significant presence and a lot of the um, agreements that unions negotiate um, uh, benefit um, workers who aren't members um, and unions spend a lot of time, um, you know, negotiating every year for an increase to the, the minimum wage, which um, uh, is of enormous importance to um, some of the most vulnerable uh, workers in our society um, 
but also taking up all sorts of issues like wage theft and superannuation theft and the gender pay gap. Um, so, so the importance of unions, I don't think, is um, it, 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 they are as important as ever. Um, but uh, I think you know the the the, the decline of union membership um, does make it difficult, and um, I think it intersects in a funny way with the decline in industrial action because one of the ways people really feel the power of um, unionism is when they do take action with their um, fellow workers and they do um, you know experience the power of uh, collective struggle and um, of achieving results together and standing up for ourselves um, and so the less that people experience that and the less that people um, really feel the power of unionism, uh, the more I think it, it becomes peripheral to their awareness. Mm. And I often wonder um, whether perhaps part of the decline is the fact that a lot of um, Australians have moved from blue-collar jobs to desk jobs or white-collar jobs. And I wonder whether there are enough unions that really represent those workers as well in, in those kind of larger um, organisations that don't perhaps fit one of the industries that are quite traditional in Australia. Yeah, there are definitely challenges around a changing economy and, and certainly the rise of, of the gig economy is, is, presents a challenge um, to, to organised unions and, um, and 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 definitely, like uh, you know, changes in the economy make it hard. Um, but you know, there's, there's uh, really um, organised workers should 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 adapt to those conditions and and are adapting. Um, but it is a challenge. Mm. Now let's get to uh, what was described by one of the people you chatted to um, as a total betrayal. Uh, in April 2007, Labor announced its industrial relations policy and this was to replace work choices. And I think anyone who would remember that campaign against uh, John Howard, it was the Rudd Howard election campaign, anyone would remember that that was really run on work choices and uh, and the unions played a huge, huge critical role in grassroots campaigning for Labor in that election. Um, but they then believed that Labor was devising a policy, as you say, that could only be described as work choices light. I mean, how did this happen, uh, Tom, that that unions were out there strongly campaigning against work choices whilst the Labor Party, of which they're strongly tied to, very closely tied to, um, was, I guess, proposing um, these these kind of reforms that were really quite detrimental to what they were, in fact, campaigning for in the first place? Yeah, I think you have to start from the the, the, the the union campaign and the union interests aligning with the Labor Party interests in a kind of a negative attack on work choices, in getting rid of work choices and getting rid of its emphasis on individual contracts and its whole shift away from um, collective bargaining and also stripping away minimum standards. Um, so there was a kind of coalescence of interests around that and getting rid of the Howard government and the, the legislation it created. But in terms of what, it, um, what replaced it, um, you know, within the Labor movement, um, the parliamentary and industrial wing, there's a whole spectrum of views. And really, it turned out that the, um, the union movement 
really wasn't able to exert much influence over over the, the shape of the laws, the Fair Work Act, that replaced work choices. Um, and, you know, in large part, that was because Your Rights at Work was, as you say, an incredibly successful campaign, and there was great evidence, there was, there was real evidence that it influenced the way people voted, um, and they, it influenced them overwhelmingly towards Labor. Um, but once Labor was elected, um, the campaign was packed up, and there was really this attitude of, right, job's done, Labor's in government, um, we can kind of go home now. And so, and, and the way we will negotiate these future laws is behind closed doors. We will, you know, you, you know we're inside the tent and we'll, we'll, cut, we'll work out a deal with the, the Labor government. You know, and when, and when it transpired that um, what, what the Labor government intended to deliver was, um, was, 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 you know, a long way short of what workers really wanted, um, the campaigning capacity had been squandered in large part. There was really, um, uh, yeah, the, 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 the whole idea of a public campaign had been... Um, set aside and so the ability to actually influence the Labor government had been um, had been squandered. Mm. And I just want to um, clear it up for anyone because this is obviously a, a very long history in terms of um, industrial relations but uh, we had before Howard we obviously had the um, Keating Hawke years we saw Howard come in and put in um, in place work choices and then we saw the Rudd government come in and put in place uh, the Fair Work Act now in terms of the Fair Work Act and the reforms that were proposed to replace work choices just how many of them were a significant departure from the Keating years I mean were these substantially different um, in in kind from the time in the the 80s and 90s when Keating was in government so I think the the important element is that the Keating government introduced something called protected action, which meant there were certain conditions in which workers could legally take industrial action. And um, they were fairly restrictive, and they, they got, those conditions became more restrictive over um, the course of the, the Howard government. Um, and then when, when the, the new act under the, the Rudd-Gillard government, the Fair Work Act, defined when you could take protected industrial action without being exposed to legal penalties. Um, it turned out that it was it continued to be um, just about as restrictive as, as it has become under the Howard government. So, I mean, the starting point is you can only take industrial action after a pre-existing agreement has expired, which means that if a pre-existing agreement is not being um, adhered to by the employer, um, you're, you're unable to take strike. Uh, you're uh, unable to take strike action. Yeah. Um, and then on top of, on top of that, um, there are a very limited range of matters uh, that, that workers can take strike action for. And it's a very kind of convoluted process that... Um, that, that you have to go through to take industrial action. So, 
first of all, a union has to make an application to the Fair Work Commission and demonstrate that they've exhausted the possibilities of good faith bargaining. Once they've done that, they then have to run a ballot of all their members, which is usually a postal ballot run through the Australian Electoral Commission, um, you know, which takes a matter of weeks. And in that ballot, you have to specify not just whether members want to take action, but exactly what kind of industrial action. Is it a full-day strike or a half-day strike or a work-to-rule um, initiative or a ban on excessive overtime? And each specified form of action has to get a majority vote from a majority of um, the, 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 the turn votes. And then once that has been achieved, it, action has to be taken within 30 days of, um, authority, uh, of the vote getting up or it expires. So you have this really narrow window of time after a fairly lengthy bureaucratic process to actually take industrial action. So that's just kind of like an example of how, how you know, for union leaders, if you imagine you're at the bargaining table, you're kind of boxed in because, you know, you, you know you've got to demonstrate to the Fair Work Commission that you've exhausted every possibility of bargaining at the table before you can even apply um, to have a ballot of members for industrial action. And then you know that once the ballot has concluded, even when it, if it's successful, you've only got 30 days to take action. So it puts real limits on you. And you also know that the negotiators on the other side of the table are aware of this and are able to... Um, to take advantage of it. Indeed. And as you said, um, sorry to interrupt there, the, the fourth um, point that you make after those three uh, conditions that need to be met is that even if you meet all of these highly unrealistic conditions, strike action isn't necessarily lawful. Um, and that's quite shocking in and of itself because, uh, as you say, that um, if you've exhausted good faith bargaining, you've conducted a ballot, you still have to give the employer three days' notice before pursuing action, during which time the employer is free to apply to a tribunal or court to have the strike quashed. So after all of that effort, uh, you could still see your strike quashed and it's also it's due to some very kind of broad um, conditions as well. It would be that uh, the Fair Work Commission would uphold the employer's application if it deems that strike action could cause significant damage to the Australian economy or that it could cause significant economic harm to the employer or employees who will be covered by the agreement. So, I mean, that's pretty much means wouldn't most of those strikes end up being unlawful? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's what um, train drivers in Sydney found out in January, that basically the Fair Work Commission said, um, we're quashing this proposed strike, even though you've been through all that convoluted process I went through before, because we've made a judgment it could cause significant economic harm, which is like the point of a strike. Yeah. It could cause significant economic harm and therefore exert leverage over the employer. Um, so, you, you know, absolutely, this, this means that um, this is a further restriction on strike action. And then on top of that, there, there's a, a very narrow range of matters about which um, workers can strike in support of. Um, so you can't strike for an industry-wide agreement or in pursuit of a common claim across an industry or for a multi-employer agreement. You can't strike for matters which are deemed non-employment matters, like if you wanted to um, negotiate for um, 
job security or you want to negotiate around um, the business's environmental practices or corporate social responsibility. Um, or if, if, um, if workers wanted to strike in protest against a government policy or, you know, a government policy that directly affects um, working conditions, like something like the minimum wage uh, workers can't strike uh, in support of. So, um, so it means that there's this very narrow range of matters um, within enterprise agreements that... That, that workers are able to strike for. So all these limitations mean that the right to, right to strike is heavily, heavily restricted. It is. And uh, I just want to raise the interesting point that you um, that you have in your article about the fact that uh, in February 2009, the Victorian branch of the electoral electrical trades union submitted a complaint to the international labor organization and uh, they were essentially suggesting that there were many contraventions of freedom of association principles uh, including restrictions on the right to organize the right to bargain collectively and the right to strike in this fair work act that the labor party put in place what happened uh, in that that particular complaint yeah, so this is the really, really interesting bit, and and you know I, I think it's really interesting in light of um, the issues we're facing now that one of the complaints uh, said that basically th- this idea that um, that that if it's going a strike's going to cause significant harm to the economy, then it has to it, it's not going to be permitted. It's going to render all successful industrial act- industrial action unlawful. Um, so you know it, it was it was prophetic, and and this um, complaint was made to the ILO, to the International Labour Organisation, and it was upheld. The the International Labour Organisation um, requested the Australian government to review six sections of the Act um, with a view to their revision. Um, now that didn't happen, and but more fundamentally, in a way. That action by the ETU was really isolated within the union movement. And when the complaint was made and when it was upheld, uh, it didn't receive support from the Australian Council of Trade Unions. So at the time when the Fair Work legislation was being... um, before a Senate committee, that the issue... The, that, that, that the legislation breached international law was not pursued by the ACTU. So it was this real problem of the union movement at large um, basically confusing its interests and um, thinking that, you know, basically confusing interests of the ro- their role as union leaders and their desire for Labor to be in power and to... Um, to basically advance the interests of the Labor Party. So at that time, uh, uh, the notable exception, the honourable exception of the Victorian branch of the ETU aside, the, the union movement was, um, you know, not, was, was very, very uh, acquiescent with the passing of this legislation. And so 10 years later, you know, the ACTU secretary is constantly referring to the fact that um, our industrial relations laws breach international law. It's constantly referring to the to the way they um, put onerous restrictions on the right to strike. But at the time the laws were actually passed, um, the ACTU was was very very quiet 
Indeed. Mm. And uh, I want to bring us into the current day because we've seen some developments uh, very recently. The Greens, in fact, have start, have come on board. Can you tell me about um, that development? Yeah, so I think the, the dynamic we now face is that there is electoral competition on the left and there are two political parties that are... Uh, vigorously asserting the interests of workers. And, um, you know, you see that with the Greens in that when Sally McManus on her first day in the job went on 7.30 and said, no, look, I think in some some cases it's right to break the law, right to take unprotected industrial action because these laws are unjust. They're in breach of international law. Um, The Greens came out and, and Richard Di Natale specifically came out in support of her, while Bill Shorten disowned her comments completely. Mm. You know, and another example of the Greens being there for the union movement is on penalty rates. So the 2016 election, the Greens proposed, um, advanced a policy that they would legislate to protect penalty rates. Uh, and Bill Shorten chided them for it. He, he attacked them for it before subsequently, um, six months later, backflipping and adopting the Greens' policy on penalty rates. So I guess the point is now is for the union movement, like how can, how can we use that competition between Greens and the Labor to get better results for working people? Um, and, and specifically, you know, how can we use the Greens to keep the Labor Party honest when it's in government. Because, you know, the whole... If you look at, you know, that amazing march through the Melbourne CBD, 120,000 people, um, it's very reminiscent of the great protests of your rights at work 10 years ago. And I guess the question for the union movement is do we... How are we going to make sure that it ends differently this time, that we aren't kind of marching against the very laws a shortened Labor government, if it's elected, uh, creates in 10 years' time? Mm. Tom, I'm going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, but I think there's so much more to talk about and I hope people uh, take a look and read through your article. It is a really great and long-form piece um, with much more detail uh, than we've been able to cover today, but I really appreciate your time and thanks for, um, I guess, bringing this all to our attention. It's obviously a really important issue that will continue to build. Thanks so much for, for the chat, Amy. No problems. That was Tom Greenwell, who is an author, a writer and teacher based in Canberra, that centre of all things politics. And his article is up on insidestory.org.au and you can read it by looking for the article entitled Were Unions the Victims of Their Own Success? You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Yes, this is 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins and I have now with me on the phone Professor James Watson who is uh, based at the University of Queensland in the School of Earth and Environmental Sciences and he's also the Director of Science and the Research Initiative at the Wildlife Conservation Society and funnily enough, 
it is also uh, International Day for Biological Diversity. So this is a perfectly timed chat with James and I welcome you now. Hi, James. Good morning. How are you? Morning. I'm great, thanks. How are you going? Yeah, well, thanks. Enjoy a lovely day in Brisbane. Is it nice up there? Because you'd, you'd be never be able to tell uh, based on the dreary weather in Melbourne. And it's, it's stunning. It's like oh, nice. Queensland day. Yeah, yeah. Fabulous. Yes, I just had a trip to Queensland on the Sunshine Coast and it was glorious even when it was raining. So um, it's, it's pretty good up there. Now, I'd like to talk about this journal article which you and your colleagues have put out in the Science Journal. It's also been um, condensed and uh, perhaps made even more accessible to the average person via the Conversation website. And uh, it's called... One third of global protected land is under intense human pressure. Um, so let's really, uh, I guess, distill and discover what this really means uh, in terms of the global uh, picture for natural protected areas. So first of all, um, what exactly, which particular areas are we looking at uh, in the world? What kind of um, preserved areas did your study particularly look at? Yeah, it's a good question. So what, what we decided to do was try and have a global uh, examination. So um, around the Earth, there's about 220,000 um, sets of land that have been identified as protected areas. They are those areas that nations um, um, say are formally uh, gazetted for nature conservation and which nations report to um, to the United Nations when they're reporting back on the Convention for Biological Diversity. So of these 220,000, we looked at about 50,000 across all nations of Earth. We um, couldn't look at the other 170,000 or so because they were simply too small to actually do the examination that we were um, doing. So we're only able to look at the biggest 50,000. But that accounted for about 90% of all protected land on the planet. So um, it was a pretty good examination um, all up. Yes, and uh, it is really interesting to know that uh, these particular protected areas, the the full number of protected areas, now covers 14.7% of the world's terrestrial area. But I was interested to note that there is actually a target to increase uh, the amount of protected areas to at least 17%. Do you think that that's going to be um, a, a realistic target for the world to reach? Look, yeah, it is. I mean, so let's, let's take a step back. So in 2010, um, 196 nations um, signed on to the 20, to 2020 Strategic Plan for Biodiversity and a core target in that 2020 plan was to achieve 17% of terrestrial areas and 10% of marine areas to be placed in a protected area on Earth. That is to safeguard for nature that land, which is a very ambitious target. Um, and we've seen this amazing growth in the protected areas today, in both land and in oceans um, over the last... 10, oh, 10 years. It's been amazing. I think there's been a doubling of the land that is protected in that period. So nations have done the first step, and that is to try and uh, create more protected areas to try to hit that target. But what we're finding is, is a sadder story. That is, even though nations are actually designating this land um, for protection, they're not actually stopping those threatening processes inside the boundaries that stop... Um, the biodiversity from going extinct or declining. So you have this land being protected, but um, but also massive um, operations around mining, 
forestry, um, road development, uh, urbanisation in some cases, also occurring on that land. So the nations are designating the land, but they're not safeguarding that land for conservation, So, which is um, kind of underwhelming. So to answer, to answer your question, though, yes, I think we'll probably get to 17% globally by 2020. I think that's definitely on the table. Whether it's 17% protect, uh, effectively protected, I think there is absolutely no chance, given what we've shown in this study. Mm. Yes, it is very um, stark when we get to uh, the human footprint and just how much of the protected land is completely free from human pressure, which uh, we will get to. But I just wanted to um, briefly outline with you um, some of the protected areas as an example so that people can get a real understanding of the types of places we're talking about. And uh, you really you outline the fact that these protected areas have a range of uh, management objectives and uh, you go through their various classifications in the International Union for Conservation of Nature. So there are some where, you know, um, it's very strict and it's absolutely must be um, pristine and maintained um, strictly away from human activity. And then there are others that uh, permit some level of human involvement um, or resource extraction. So could you share with us, I guess, on on the one end, um, an area which has really been out- highlighted and um, outlined as something that should be strictly protected and um, isolated from human activity and, and probably one other area where uh, there is some flexibility in the human activity that can uh, take part in that land area. Yeah, so, I mean, so let's be clear here. If a nation designates a piece of land as a protected area, um, you know, they have to designate it a class from very strict, which is IUCN classification one, all the way up to um, less strict, you know, which is up to six. But even um, across all that classification, the primary purpose of that land or that sea being designated for, for conservation is for biodiversity, you know. So you cannot undertake activities which contradict the primary objective of that allocation of land and so um, while you can see some you know these this flexibility amongst the categories of designation it still needs to actually ensure that biodiversity actually is retained in in the boundaries of the protected area and so um, you know what we're finding is serious human activity, activity that, you know, we know causes species decline and extinction. We Activity which we know causes the erosion of the ecological processes that ensure that biodiversity can persist in the future, especially when you think about climate change. Those activities are occurring inside the park boundary. So they're incompatible with the primary objective, which is conserving biodiversity. So, you know, I think there's always a little bit of confusion around, you know, what is the protected area for? Well, the protected area is always for biodiversity first. It's just those categories change in flexibility to allow a little bit of human um, human uh, activity, especially Indigenous-oriented activity inside those boundaries to ensure that people don't feel excluded from those areas, especially those people who've lived on land for a long period of time. Mm. And, so- the, and, the, and the other thing I should like to say, though, is, you know, and let's be clear here is... 17% is the target on land. That means that 83% of the land is open slather for humanity. You know, so I think that we've got to always keep that in back of mind. That, you know, like we, we, we nations designate these areas so they give biodiversity a break from that 
massive um, um, uh, effort that humans are doing around the world in terms of natural resource extraction from agriculture, from you know energy um, energy creation and stuff like that. So again, I think I think we need to really understand that these places are places that we're trying to give nation nature a bit of a chance when it comes to the massive domination that humans have on the planet. Exactly, and you say in this uh, research piece that only 42% of protected land was free of any measurable human pressure. So is this a case of if you give people an inch, they take a mile? 100%. It's it's 100%. It also just shows that many nations around the world are just showing a lack of leadership. They're doing the easy thing, and that is designating the land um, for protection in a, a, a theoretical space you know, in quotation marks, this land is protected, but they're not halting the, the, the activity that actually threatens biodiversity within that space. You know, and, and you know, I can, I can understand why that happens in very poor nations which are trying to develop, therefore utilise their natural resources to, you know, to ensure that their economies grow. So nations such as Mozambique or Cambodia or, or Myanmar, you know, uh, I can understand that, you know, yes, okay, our resource extraction will occur inside some of these protected areas. But what is not okay and what we've found is that it's happening inside very rich countries like Australia. We, you know, Australia famously has mining in the middle of our protected areas. You know, Kakadu National Park has a massive uranium mine right dead set in the centre of, of, of that national park. Despite the fact that that is so incredibly important for biodiversity of Northern Territory and the top end, and also culturally so very important to the Indigenous peoples up there. Uh, you know, and there's, there's parks everywhere. Carnarvon Gorge in Queensland, a beautiful park which has endangered species. We allow cattle grazing inside them. You know, in, in the Alpine National Park near Canberra, we're allowing horse, horses to run rampant and cattle, until recently, were allowed to actually go ballistic inside the, the boundaries of that park. Um, you know, and all through South Australia, mining occurs inside protected areas. In Western Australia, it's, you know, it's, it's literally a gold rush. There's no boundary which will stop that area mining occurring inside protected areas. So it's, it's, it's not just a third world problem. It's actually a, a first world problem. And probably really sadly, no nation is showing leadership in actually really designating this land for protection. Well, that is really quite disturbing. In terms of the Australian context and uh, the legislative landscape that's enabling that to happen, you know, are, are governments, I guess, ignoring um, conventions that they've signed on to or are they actually breaching their own laws or do we just have poor laws in the first place that are enabling protected areas to be severely damaged by human activity? I think, I think the laws are fine. The laws of this land is fantastic. It's just they're not being enforced. And that, that goes you know, not just with um, protected areas, but with the EPBC Act, the Endangered Species you know, Biodiversity Act, where you know the laws are perfectly fine in my mind. Um, it's just there's lack of political will to enforce them. Yeah, and, and perhaps and the resources. Oh uh, yeah, yes, but you know, but you know, there are two types of enforcement, aren't there? There are mm. enforcements. Uh, one is you have to go and stop someone from doing something, which is costly. The other one is not allowing him to do it in the first place, which is cheap. You know, and I think you know, it's that second one which is quite, quite um, 
sad when it comes to protected areas because it's quite clear that if you're designating land for protection, for nature, for to safeguard nature, you shouldn't therefore allow development to occur inside that land boundary. So you know, that should just be, look, no, you're not doing that because that's a protected area and that's a boundary and you're not meant to do that. But we even allow those kind of things, you know, and we, as I say, you know, like, you know, we, right now, there is, there is grazing of cattle inside protected areas in Queensland, you know, which is just crazy because we know grazing of cattle is a primary source of why um, species are going extinct in Queensland in the first place. But that is happening, you know, and, and, and governments allow that to happen. Um, and as I say, if you just went, actually, no, you're not allowed to do that, get the cattle out of the protected area, that would give nature a bit of a break and also um, ensure that a protected area state actually does what it's meant to be doing. So, it's, you know, I think um, it's a political will is what it is. And I think the, the reason why we wrote this paper is just to try and raise awareness of the issues because I think a lot of people don't really know. You know, mm. you know and, and I think and, and you have the extreme conservative element of politics arguing we have too many protected areas. Well, you know, I'd, I'd argue... That's a nonsense because, you know, we need more because biodiversity is in a crisis. But most of our protected areas aren't even enforced. So, you know, that we shouldn't even count them as protected areas. Yes, I think a lot of people might assume that this should be a fairly black and white issue. If it's designated as a protected area, then it's just a protected area. So you're absolutely right that this research piece is highlighting something whereby, um, you know, the general population has possibly made assumptions that these particular areas are cordoned off and they're, um, they're, they are strictly enforced in terms of uh, their protection, but in case that in actual fact they're not and uh, one of the the interesting research findings in this paper is that almost three quarters of nations have over 50 percent of their protected land under intense human pressure and uh, further that if one assumes that protected land under intense human pressure does not contribute toward conservation targets then you show that 74 of the 111 nations that have reached a level of 17 percent protected coverage would drop off the list. So, I mean, most of those uh, countries, that's really a substantial amount of those countries wouldn't um, meet that target that they're saying they're currently meeting. I mean, do, do, do nations um, have this awareness that, that they, the, the, the protections that they are outlining and saying that they have achieved are so um, compromised? I think, I think they, I think we, until this paper was published, I think the extent of the problem probably wasn't known. I think there was a people did were aware that there were a paper park issue, you know, parks that were protected only in paper's name, but actually not on the ground. What this shows is, you know, it's a dramatic problem. You know, like there's one third of all land is massively degraded and therefore should not even be counted. Um, but you know, like, will nations therefore report accurately on their progress? I hope so. I hope, you know, I really do hope that um, nations can take this type of science and other, other science out there and actually say, all right, we've got to actually count for nature properly because otherwise we're running out of time. You know, biodiversity is blinking out in front of our eyes. We have an extinction crisis um, that is not abating and that, you know, in 50 years' time, the game will be over in terms of the moves we can make to save nature. Um, and, you know, you'd hope that nations can be proactively, get, get, you know, lead, you know, 
get involved and actually account properly. What I would say, which is, is critical, is it needs a few nations to really show leadership. And that's nations like Australia. Australia are a mega biodiverse country. We're one of the 20 most biodiverse countries on the planet. Um, we have a special uh, set of species in, in our, on across the continent, many species not found anywhere else on, on, in the world. Um, and we're rich and we have a low population density and most of the people live on the coast. We have plenty of land to, you know, to safeguard nature and actually protect it. And it would be great if Australia actually showed some leadership and actually protected the land in a real sense and got to that target first and were able to say to the world, like the French are doing in climate change, Australia is leading the world in biodiversity conservation. We are, we are you know, going to be setting the standard and holding the bar high so other nations can look at the bar and say we have to reach that too. You know, uh, that's what's missing right now is no nation is showing that leadership. And I think that Australia could play a really profound role in that, um, you know, and plays to both sides of politics. Even if you're a hardcore conservative or a really, you know, a wet, or, sorry, a really um, hardcore left-winger, you'd all agree that our biodiversity, our natural legacy is special and something worth saving. It's something that should break the under-political divide and actually, you know, be something we can achieve. And I, I'm hoping that this type of science can raise the awareness to wake people up to do something that actually gets gets um, some leadership going. You're absolutely right, James. It should be a source of national pride to protect our environment. And uh, I really thank you for your passion and advocacy on this issue. And congratulations to you and your colleagues on this really important research. I hope that uh, it does make some changes and raise more awareness. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. That was Professor James Watson from the University of Queensland and he's also the Director of the Science and Research Initiative at the Wildlife Conservation Society. And if you want to uh, read more about this research, you can do so uh, on The Conversation. And that is one the, the particular article uh, we've been discussing is one third of global protected land is under intense human pressure. And if you have access to journal articles um, through perhaps a university uh, login or you're an academic, you can look at the full academic journal article on the Science Journal. It's uh, volume 360 and, uh, and it's of the same title. So uh, definitely check that out. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You are tuned to 3RRR FM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And I have with me now on the phone uh, award-winning author and zoologist, Dr. Danielle Claude, who joins me to talk about her new book, The Wasp and the Orchid, The Remarkable Life of Australian Naturalist Edith Coleman. And uh, certainly at the time Edith was writing, she, quote, needed no introduction, uh, as it says in the book, but she does need an introduction now. So I'm going to speak with Danielle about this and find out why we've forgotten Edith's work. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Amy. It's lovely to chat uh, with you. Thanks for joining us and uh, congratulations on this um, fascinating book. Thank you. Um, it's so, to be here. yeah, no, it's great. Um, I certainly, when I um, saw this. 
this book and looked at the cover, I was immediately taken in because it has a beautiful um, illustration of of plants, particularly some really nice native flowers in there. And um, and then when I opened uh, the the cover and looked inside, I was um, surprised to hear that a 48-year-old housewife from Blackburn um, is a Australian and, I guess, global um, orchid expert. And uh, at the time that she was writing, um, she was one of Australia's foremost experts in that field. And uh, and certainly she became the first woman to be awarded the Australian Natural History Medallion in 1949. So, I mean, this is a person who clearly was, um, you know, a huge, a huge deal at the time in the in the nineteen forties, and obviously earlier. And um, and it's surprising that I hadn't heard of her. And I wonder, um, you know, given your background in nature writing and uh, and this field, did you first come across her in your research? Um, yes, I first came across her when I was working um, at Museum Victoria. So I was doing research for the museum on their um, natural history collections and um, coming up with themes and ideas for their exhibition spaces. And uh, it was just one of many stories that popped up in that research. Um, and it's just one that stuck with me. I've always been fascinated by her story. I guess, I guess it's, you know, I mean, there's lots of lots of nature writers and lots of naturalists and amateur naturalists who made remarkable contributions to Australian natural history but I, I just thought there were some aspects of her story that particularly struck me and has stayed with me for 20 years now. Yes, and one of the things you um, highlight is that she had, there was a period of of her life in England where she grew up and then there was a period of of her life where she was a housewife and raised two daughters and then there's a period of her life, um, you know, much later I guess in her life uh, when she was in her late 40s that she started writing about um, orchids, that she observed these um, plants, not only orchids but other um, plants as well and that she almost immediately when she started writing had this air or level of maturity um, that you often wouldn't see, uh, that you would often need many years to develop and uh, and grow but um, you write in this book that she really started out fully formed. Can you talk a bit about how um, Edith's backstory or background um, could have I guess prepared the ground for her career as a nature writer? Hmm. I, yeah I guess that's one of the interesting things about her, her, her story is when I started my, the, the way I started the project was really just trying to compile all her publications and and locate them all. We had most of her sort of more scientific papers are published in the Victorian Naturalist um, Journal, and so they're relatively easy to access, and and I knew about most of those. But I also knew that she had a lot of articles in newspapers and magazines, and they're much more difficult to track down. So part of the project was, was sourcing all of those, and... And I realised when I'd, when I'd collected, uh, you know, quite a lot of them, I, I realised that she just appeared as this naturalist who... who she, her papers don't change through her lifetime. They change in terms of the topics she covered. She started out focusing on orchids and she branched out into a much wider range of topics later on. But, but the style of her writing doesn't change. There's no... 
real development in them, she, she starts out as authoritative and confident as she finishes. So whatever happened um, before that to, to get her to that stage of authority is a bit of a mystery. She, she certainly did it on her own and she didn't publish it as far as I'm aware. Indeed. And, I mean, you, throughout this book, intersperse um, essays and articles that Edith has written uh, at various points in her career. And one of the um, the excerpts that I think was particularly illuminating about Edith's uh, approach to nature and her appreciation of nature was um, one called A Garden Wilderness, Old-Fashioned Favourites and Familiar Friends. And she writes, Mine is a garden of wilderness. In it there are no firm borders and few well-pruned shrubs, but instead a tangled growth that speaks of healthy plant appetites and a plebeian capacity for making the most of such conditions as offer. My edging plants have a shameless way of breaking all restraint. Petunias, verbenas and warm-scented agaratum seem to wander at will over the paths to my delight and with, let me add, my encouragement. Uh, it is quite... I mean, she has such a, a personality and some kind of... A, a lot of wit and cheekiness, I guess, interspersed in there, but her her whole approach as you write throughout the book is that, um, you know, she doesn't want to see nature constrained or, um, you know, trimmed into neat rows. Um, her own garden in Blackburn was very wild and and she certainly, as she says, encouraged encouraged plants to interact and grow together and, um, and you know, to not be boxed in. Um, can you talk a bit about what we know of her own gardens and the influence that, the influences that she herself had? Mm. Yeah, I, I think that it is very characteristic of her approach to both gardening and to her study of nature. She, she's She's really, an, I think, an early ecologist. I think more, she would have described herself as a plant specialist, an orchid specialist. But, but really, she has a very ecological approach to nature study and the environment. She's interested in how how things interact, um, how different species interact with each other, and she's also very non-judgmental. Um, so she she doesn't like to condemn any plant or animal for the way it chooses you know, its particular life history or approach to things. And I think that's one of the things that led her to make such great discoveries. I mean, the the, the mystery of how um, orchids manipulate wasps to pollinate them was something that really mystified people for a long time. And Edith was able to discover that, the, the you know, that what was going on was actually of a sexual nature, which, which was probably due to her quite open-minded approach to to studying the natural world. She wasn't prudish, she wasn't um, concerned about convention, she was just interested in observing what happened and actually seeing it with a very clear eye. And I think that's apparent in her garden writing as well as her nature writing. And, and she doesn't, she's not snobby about nature or gardening either, you know. She, she sees beauty and value in, in the smallest things. And the least exciting kinds of little spiders and bugs in the garden. Um, and I think that was very inspiring for the people she wrote for, and especially for women. She was very keen on encouraging housewives and mothers to get out and do nature study and that they could make as valuable a contribution as anybody else. Certainly that is the case and as you write, the Field Naturalists Club of Victoria was a very open club and it encouraged people of all backgrounds to take 
apart and to, I guess, become amateur uh, nature writers as well as professional ones. So there were certainly a lot of people that she was exposed to and um, writing letters to and presenting papers in front of that were keen observers of nature like herself. Uh, But she became quite a published author um, and and almost like a scientist, really. She was published in some really key scientific journals. And you mentioned there one of her discoveries, which, as you said, Charles Darwin couldn't even uh, pick. It was, in fact, Edith Coleman that discovered uh, pseudocopulation uh, with, between wasps and orchids. Could you explain exactly um, what pseudocopulation is and what Edith was observing at the time? Sure, sure. I, I, the, the, the issue is with orchids. Most most flowers, um, you know, plants have flowers in order to detract insects and other pollinating animals like birds and things to come and pollinate them. And they do that by providing predominantly nectar and pollen, which the, the um, organisms like to feed on. So bees, for example, will come and collect nectar and pollen from flowers and in the process pollinate them. But orchids... Despite some orchids, despite having these fantastic flowers, which are clearly designed to attract insects, um, don't produce any nectar. And this was the mystery that um, puzzled Darwin and many other orchidologists, is why do orchids have flowers if they don't produce any nectar? Why are insects coming in? If insects are coming and pollinating them, what are they getting out of the deal? Um, and Edith noticed, well, actually Edith's daughter, Dorothy, noticed um, some, they had some orchids in a vase that they'd picked from their property in Hillsville and some native orchids. And she noticed that some wasps were buzzing around them and behaving very strangely. Most insects, when they go into a flower, will go in head first because they're feeding on the nectar. These insects were backing in, so they were going into the flower backwards. And this was a very strange piece of behaviour and it led Edith to do a whole heap of experiments to try and work out what was going on. And I think the crucial thing she realised was was when she realised that all the wasps were male. There were no female wasps behaving in this way. And through careful observation and a series of experiments, she realised that what the wasps were doing was mating with the orchids. And she she confirmed that they were, in fact, pollinating the orchids. And so she realised that in some way that she wasn't able to tell, particularly at the time, the orchids were inducing the wasps to mate with them um, and therefore being attached with the pollen and taking it off and pollinating other orchids. So this, this resolved a long-standing mystery and confirmed some other observations from other parts of the world. In some ways, Edith was fortunate because this is a phenomenon that does happen elsewhere, that you have pseudocopulating wasps and orchid associations in Europe, but it's a lot rarer there, whereas Australia is actually quite a hotbed for this kind of activity. We have a lot of wasp-orchid associations like this that involve pseudocopulation. So well, she became quite, quite a bit of an international success over this particular discovery. She did, and she established close relationships, working relationships with a range of um, other nature writers and scientists and uh, many of those people uh, cited her work and her research and in fact she really prepared the ground for the study of pseudocopulation um, itself. But I want to talk about... uh, 
Edith's, I guess, her work with her daughters because her daughters, um, they went to university and they were also really uh, keen nature observers and uh, studied nature at university in various areas. And uh, and I'd love to hear more about um, the types of collaborations that, um, that we can, I guess, read into uh, between Edith and her daughters. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess when I first um, started investigating this story, you know, it's quite... You know, Edith only starts publishing pretty much when her daughters go to university. And so I kind of thought, oh, well, she was too busy being a mother. She wasn't able to spend time doing her nature study before that. So it was when she had this bit of freedom that she was able to, to you know, pursue her own interests. But the more I looked into it, the more I realised that that probably wasn't an accurate way of looking at her life because in actual fact her daughters had started their interest in nature much earlier they had been writing to the newspaper um there's a you know column in the melbourne newspapers called nature for boys um (laughs) notes for boys Mm. which um they wrote to despite being girls they weren't going to be put off by that um for quite a number of years and um they obviously went to university and and gladys studied biology and Dorothy actually studied um, English and literature, but she went on to become a teacher and taught biology, so she was also very interested in that. Dorothy also joined the Field Naturalist Club earlier than Edith, so in many ways they can be seen as not probably not leading the way, but, but taking an active interest in these sorts of things. And, and at around the time Edith started publishing articles in newspapers, Gladys was also publishing articles in local newspapers of the same kind of nature study paper. So everywhere you look, there's this connection between mother and daughter in their activities. And, and it made me realise that perhaps it was the maturing interest of her daughters in nature that made her become also more outgoing and interested in sharing her ideas to a, to a wider audience. So, um, and, and Dorothy ended up being a long-term collaborator with her mother. She was she was the one who drove Edith um, off on her expeditions looking for orchids, um, drew, drew images for many of Edith's papers and, and was a very active um, collaborator. Indeed. And one of the, uh, the areas that I also really enjoyed about this book is that Edith, um, as you have referenced, was not necessarily preoccupied only with flowers or only with orchids. She loved nature overall. And uh, she writes in one of her essays, Some Autumn Orchids, that uh, with me, the love of these shy blooms is not an isolated attachment. It is closely associated with the songs of birds, the scent of heath, blue hills, cool gullies and the whipbirds call and the many other delights which each, each season brings. To the true lover of orchids, there is no orchid season. So she herself was particularly, I I guess broad-minded in her approach to nature and something that um, really struck me was the uh, national parks movement and their key uh, participation in the campaign to protect Wilson's promontory and uh, and I just I guess would love to hear a bit more about that and um, and the essential role that people like Edith and the Field Naturalist Club uh, took in those movements. Yeah, I mean, that's a very early movement in Australia to get those parks protected and they they had to fight quite hard for it. They'd sort of 
get what they thought was protection and then the government would backtrack on their commitments. So um, it was a long and hard-fought battle. But, you know, that, that particular period of time was really important for nature conservation in Australia. And I think people like Edith in particular um, really set the scene for future generations because, you know, Edith was particularly keen to, as I said, to speak to mothers and to children and to encourage mothers to teach their children about the, the, the joys and treasures of the outdoors and, and nature. So in many ways she can be seen as a, as a forerunner of that movement later on that became much more active um, in future generations. But I think organisations like the Field Naturalist Club were really important because they, you know, Melbourne was a much smaller place then and, and you had a lot of very key figures involved, you know, from the public service, from the botanic gardens, um, from the university, who were mixing in with amateur enthusiasts and, and concerned members of the public. Um, so it sort of gave them a very powerful uh, and widespread lobby group, um, well-connected lobby group of quite informed individuals who were who were able to put a lot of pressure on governments to to protect acids at an early stage, which which we've all benefited from in the long run. Mm, we have, and Wilson's Promontory is one of those amazing parts of Australia, certainly, and um, and it's interesting that that was, I guess, one of the. Um, areas that Edith would have first seen when she arrived in Australia so um, it's nice to see that kind of symmetry Um, but I just like to talk about nature writing which um, you highlight the Australian tradition of nature writing and um, and I guess that there's this kind of view that Australia doesn't really have a particular tradition of nature writing or a strong one, but in fact that's not the case. Uh, it's just that generally our nature writers have been more straight and um, sober in their writing, um, perhaps more scientific than other nature writers from England. And uh, and I guess I'd love to hear a bit more about Australia's tradition of nature writing and where Edith fits in that and, and if she's influenced influenced other nature writers since? Mm, it's an interesting question. I mean, well, there's been a bit of a resurgence lately of what's called new nature writing, you know, with, um, you know, David McFarlane and Helen MacDonald and people like that. And, and often when we talk about nature writing, we trace it back to writers like Thoreau, um, and, but also to Gilbert White in, in England and people, people like that. But I think that one of the real characteristics of, of that particular style of nature writing is a, is a very strong um, focus on the personal experience. So a lot of those nature writers talk about their own relationship with nature, how they perceive nature, how it influences them. It's almost a spiritual kind of discovery or a, or a therapeutic approach to nature. And I think Australian nature writing follows quite a different tradition to that. Um, we have a much more observational approach to nature. So, so there's a there's a long tradition of writing about nature, but it doesn't discuss the person who's the writer themselves. There's very rarely um, an I used in the writing, so they don't talk about themselves. And Edith belonged to the same tradition. She very rarely speaks about herself or even other people in her writing. She's she's entirely focused on observing the natural world. Indeed, and when we look at, uh, I guess, the prominence of Edith Coleman and her work, we know that she published in uh, in 
I guess, newspapers and magazines that many people would have come across in their regular reading habits, the age in particular, but also uh, women's magazines. And so her work was certainly accessible to a range of people, a range of audiences. Um, But I also am interested about um, how, whether her gender ever hampered her or played um, a factor in her career, whether it was a benefit or whether it detracted at all. Because, I mean, at the time that she is uh, writing, we still haven't um, reached second wave feminism and certainly women's roles are still quite traditional. So uh, I wonder you know, how, what the landscape was like for Edith working in that kind of field, which at the time, although um, there are women amateur naturalists, I imagine there are fewer uh, professional naturalists mm, at the time. Mm. Yeah, no, women. I mean, it is it is interesting. I think botany is, is unu- a little bit unusual in that it was regarded as a suitable occupation for women. So you tend, do tend to have more women in the history of botanical science than you do in perhaps some of the other areas. Um, and, of course, you know, like, for example, in zoology, the closer you get to medicine, the more difficult it is for, for women to get involved. They were, they were often quite actively excluded from medicine in particular. Um, but botany was, was regarded as, as pretty okay for, for women and we do have quite a few um, quite important early women involved in botany who did actually take up important positions at University of Melbourne. Um, but they were locked out as soon as they got to a fairly senior stage of their careers. So we have a couple of cases where women were occupying essentially what was the head of school role um, but when it came to the formal appointment, they would be um, bumped off for, you know, a Cambridge man or somebody, <laughs> somebody mm. from England who who brought, you know, more authority and um, <laughs> clout with them. So, so there's an interesting change in feminism. There, there was sort of a surge of women becoming very actively involved in the sciences, and then they were suppressed through the 40s and 50s and then we get the next wave in the you know 60s and 70s so it's quite it's it's she was involved in a very interesting time i suppose in terms of her personal experience there's not much evidence that she faced um discrimination for being a woman um certainly people were skeptical of her work when they first encountered it but that could equally have been from the fact that she was an amateur and not associated with the university she was an unknown um, commodity but as soon as people and, and what happened when she published was that people would um, check they would they would write to some well-known orchidologist like um, Dr Rogers in Adelaide and say what's this all about can you check and see if this work is valid and Dr Rogers actually knew Edith Coleman and he came across to Hillsville and and was completely persuaded by her observations and work and glowing recommendations of it. So so once her position was verified, which is something that always happens in science, science always relies on that verification that somebody's not making up their data. Um, There weren't any obvious discrimination uh, in terms of gender, but I do suspect that that's because she was an amateur, that's because she wasn't competing for a university position. If there were positions of prestige involved, I suspect she would have faced a lot harder time. Absolutely, that that is true, and certainly um, even in those fields where women do dominate, uh, there can be a bit of a, a ceiling when it comes to the most senior appointments, as you um, outline in the book. Uh, 
professorial appointments are still quite low in terms of um, women in this field today, although there are plenty of women um, studying at university and, in fact, a majority of those studying are women in many universities. Um, we're still seeing that kind of disparity. But let's uh, also talk about Edith and um, some of the, I guess, habits and um, things that she did. Not only did she write, but she collected specimens and she also did um, draw some of the illustrations herself. There's a really nice picture, I think it was of a daffodil uh, in the in the book as well. But could you talk about her contribution in terms of uh, the discoveries she made of particular species and um, I guess the, the specimens that she collected? What do we know about that activity that she um, undertook? Well, we do know that she collected an awful lot of specimens. So that was a very common practice at the time to collect specimens. And, and people would, because a lot of the orchids were unknown, um, that many of them are still not very well known. Um, and so collecting specimens was an important way of identifying species and trying to... The orchids are a particularly difficult um, group. They hybridise, they, they're rare, they pop up here and there and then disappear. Um, so so they, they're quite complicated in terms of taxonomy. Um, so Edith was very actively involved in that and she shared specimens with other people. So we know from some of her correspondence that she was prolific in sharing um, specimens with other people. So she would ask people for specimens it's just like a trading you know like trading cards or whatever <laughs> collectibles people would swap specimens so that they ended up with a with a full collection of different species and, and edith participated in that and we, we know that a lot of her specimens still remain in many of the um, herbariums around australia so um, you can now search the the herbarium records and and see all of her specimens and where they're located and they're scattered across many different um, herbariums. So so she she did name several species. She's had species named after her. So I think there's still four um, valid species that are named after Edith and acknowledge her her contribution. Um, but she also made she wrote a little booklet as well on Australian wattles, which was really the first kind of systematic approach to Australian wattles and, and an understanding of of that particular group. Um, she wasn't... Her, she would not have called herself an artist, certainly not in comparison to her daughters who were both quite talented in that field. Um, she used to photograph most of her um, specimens and she provided a lot of photographs for her um, articles and she was quite good at that. Although, again, she didn't regard that as her forte either. She... She said that the photography drove her mad because they were so difficult to get good photographs of, of her specimens. Indeed. I mean, she was quite, uh, I guess you could say humble, really, in what she was good at or not good at. But there's also um, some you know, questioning of how Edith presented herself and how she wanted to be perceived um, by others. And, I mean, there's only so much of the historical record that you can utilise in this particular area. But I know that um, you note throughout the book that there are many gaps and many um, things that need to be, I guess, uh, read into. And in some cases, we'll never know um, what, you know, Edith was doing at a, a certain point in time or how influential someone was in her work or, you know, there are many gaps um, that 
that need to be filled and can be filled. And you do try to um, in some way work around that and work with those gaps. And I, I want to understand from your perspective researching this, what were some of the most difficult and challenging parts of Edith's story to put together? Because um, you were dealing with a, a lot of constraints. Mm. Yeah, it is a very fragmentary record and I think that's a feature of many of, you know, amateur naturalists and and particularly women is that they don't necessarily leave the the well-documented lives that we might like of of the more well-connected professional men. Um, So, you know, I I think that if you want to recover these lost stories, the people who don't necessarily leave lots of archives... Um, behind, then then you need to work out a way of dealing with those fragments and, and recognising that there are gaps and that you might have got things wrong. And I guess that's why I wrote the book the way I did, because I wanted to acknowledge what that process was um, and how the research, how I went about my research. And also, to I, I didn't want to present a an authoritative account of Edith's life because I didn't feel that I could do that. I can only present the information I have and explain how I've interpreted it and it's really up to the reader to decide whether they agree with that or not. There's there's so many different ways of interpreting someone's life um, that it wouldn't be right to present it as the truth. Um, it's, It's just... This is the information I have and, and this is what I think was going on, I guess, is, is the approach I wanted to take. So it's much more of a creative approach to biography um, than you might do for, say, you know, a political figure or somebody that has left um, a much more substantial record. That said, Edith did, did um, set the tone for her records in a way. She, there was, she had a colleague who was interested in writing a biography, Kate Baker, who's best known for her work promoting um, John Furphy. Um, and she wrote a manuscript, which was a, a short biography of literary figures, and Edith Coleman was included in that. So some really valuable and important information came from that unpublished manuscript. Um, but I realised that um, in that manuscript, there's a whole heap of quotes from people... Um, you know, sort of praising Edith's work and um, and talking about what she's achieved. And I noticed that those quotes were the same as a document I got from Edith's grandson, which was written in Edith's own handwriting. And I realised that what had probably happened is that Edith has transcribed out the quotes that she wants Kate Baker to use onto a separate piece of paper and given those quotes to her. So I'm not sure that Kate actually had the original letters that they came from. She's just got this carefully curated list of sources that that Edith has provided her and which, of course, now I am also drawing on. So, you know, in some ways her her influence over the historical record is is quite specific. Um, And both Edith and her daughters were quite private people as well. So that's another reason why there aren't very many archives because they, they had most of their personal documentation destroyed when they died. Yes, and I am speaking with Dr. Danielle Claude, who has written a book called uh, The Wasp and the Orchid, The Remarkable Life of Australian Naturalist Edith Coleman. Now, Danielle, just before we go, um, I wanted to talk and just ask you about uh, her her contribution to science and nature writing. In your view, um, what do you think 
she uh, has uniquely contributed to science and what are some of the most important um, contributions you think have withstood the test of time? No, she's made important contributions to a whole range of areas and it's not that they're great earth-shattering discoveries. I mean, apart from the pseudocopulation work, which, which you know, did, did quite change the way we think about things, you know, she's, she's done pioneering work on hibernation in echidnas. She's the only person to have studied mating behaviour in hunts and spiders. She did work on frog mouths, on mistletoe, on um, grasshoppers and praying mantises. So she did a huge range of work. I think it's her breadth of approach that's the most valuable and she's by no means the only person to do that. I think there's a lot of women and a lot of amateurs out there who have done similar things and really in highlighting her work I wanted to draw attention to all the other people who've done this really important work in biology to help us understand the natural world around us. Well, Danielle, you've done a fantastic job. It is a very literary biography and so if um, it's perfect reading during the autumn and winter months when you want to uh, curl up inside while it's raining outside and read something that is uh, really beautiful and uh, I guess something that's kind of takes you into another world. So congratulations on writing this and um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Amy. It's been a pleasure. That was Dr. Danielle Claude, who is an award-winning author and zoologist, and she has written a book called The Wasp and the Orchid, The Remarkable Life of Australian Naturalist Edith Coleman. And it is out through Pan Macmillan Australia, and it's a beautiful hardback book with quite a few illustrations. So it's um, a beautiful gift and or um, something that's really, you can meander through um, at your will and I guess pick out bits that are particularly of interest. So uh, do take a look at that because it is a beautifully put together book. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. You're tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins and uh, I now have with me the Curator of Photography from the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra. Her name is Anne O'Hare and she joins me in the studio to talk about the travelling exhibition Deanne Arbus, American Portraits and I welcome her now. Hi Anne. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's fabulous to have you and uh, great to have you in Melbourne to talk about this wonderful exhibition, which has been put together by the National Gallery of Australia and it's travelling to a few cities in Australia. Um, where is it off to after the Heidi? So it's on till about the middle of um, June, 19th of June or something at Heidi and then it goes just to the Art Gallery of South Australia and then they all come home to have a little sleep <laughs> after all the excitement. Yeah, it is pretty exciting. There's quite a few uh, photographs in this exhibition and not just by Deanne Arbus but also by um, some really interesting photographers I had not come across at I all. Know. Oh, I know. The title's a little bit um, strange because it's Deanne Arbus and all her little friends. Yeah. So it's people who influenced Arbus. It's about Arbus, essentially, the show. Everybody's in it because they've got a connection to Deanne. Yeah. So, but there are extraordinary uh, photographers. The uh, National Collection in Canberra is an extraordinary one. There's Mm. no doubt about that. And so it's got such depth. So to do a show on Deanne, I can do really wonderful uh, 
looking across to other people, people who influenced her, really extraordinary giants of the medium like Walker Evans. There's beautiful Walker Evans in the mm. show. Wonderful Very to take the and Models out. Yes, yeah. everybody else. I mean, I, yeah, I always talk about Deanne. It's always about she always sucks all the air out of the room. And I'm like, can I talk <laughs> about someone else, Deanne? She's like, no. So it's all about Deanne. But, yeah. you know, you could do you could just do a talk on every single person in the show for about five hours. So yeah. there's wonderful uh, William Eggleston's that I just, just to die for, just breathtaking, mm. beautiful, beautiful um, And their colour photographs, they really stand out because there aren't many colour photographs in this exhibition. No, Deanne works in black. No, everyone else I think is black and white, just mm. a little bit of colour just to liven things up a little bit. But they are like the completely iconic, the, the tricycle and the yeah. red ceiling and so on, absolutely to die for Eagleston's mm. and beautiful things like by Mary Ellen Mark who was influenced by her. So the story isn't always the same. Everybody's got their own story to tell but the when it's, you know the way that the, they talk to each other is really uh, interesting. And Lizette Medell who's in the show, she was uh, one of the most important teachers that Deanne had, really about the only one really, and she encouraged Deanne at a time at a sort of crossroads when she was trying to get to this style that she got to. Mm. And Deanne says to her, I don't know what to photograph, Lizette. And Lizette, well, go, you know, you better go home and have a bit of a think about it. She was quite stern. So Deanne does that and she comes back the next day and she's like, I want to photograph evil. And she says, I also want to photograph everything. I want, to, I want you to know, make these huge statements about what it means to be on this planet. And how am I going to do that? And Lizette says to her, well, the thing you've got to understand is that if you want to make those really big statements, then you've got to be very specific. And that's sort of true. One of the paradoxes, I think, of photography maybe is that the more, you know, she so much is about her own time, Deanne. It's to my sort of influences the way that we think about the 60s particularly. You know, it's, it almost becomes, you know, the, the look of the, of the decade. But... Because of that very um, specific nature of them, they, be, they become timeless. So um, they have this sense of just being, I think, as relevant today as they were when they were made, even, you know, as the planet goes more and more bonkers, perhaps mm. they're more relevant than they ever were. Uh, so it's interesting. And, you know, there's this beautiful thing that Lizette says that she's talking to the students and she's teaching the time and she says... She can see, she says, you, the important things, you've got to come from the source. And Lizette always talks about coming from the gut, don't photograph till something hits you in the gut. And she said that she could see Le Deanne sort of get it. Arba sort of goes like, I get, and she says you can see her own voice take over at that point and it's an amazing moment when Arba sort of becomes Arba's. Mm. But she also says about Deanne that she was like something like the greatest learner I ever encountered so she can look at these earlier photographers and she was very well she had a very privileged upbringing she goes to these wonderful ethical culture school and fields and schools in new york she's a new yorker yeah. and you know they're, they're extraordinarily progress, progressive schools so she's reading a lot she's thinking a lot she paints when she's younger but she's been working with her husband alan arbus in a fashion studio for about 10 years before she, you know, so it starts to go out her own, her own stuff. So she's really thinking, but she can look at people like, she looks at Lizette and gets that you've got to shoot from the gut, you've got to connect, you've got to wait till something speaks to you. Mm. But then she'll look at someone like Walker Evans, who also is a very passionate person, but he has this cold, formal sort of eye. She gets that 
photography has to be tough. Yeah. You know, because a lot of the work that's being made at the time, the big show when she's just starting to start off is a very strange big show called The Family of Man, which is one of the biggest shows well, all around the world. And it's this very sentimental, humanist story. Uh, you know, there's no real regard for the importance of the photographic print. They're just all blown up. And it's this, not Swami, but it's this very sort of humanist story. And she sort of gets that... Photographs had to be tough. She gets that from Walker. So it's this amazing ability. So it's interesting to look at these people. William Klein is another photographer she looks at who's in the show. And he's interesting. He's grown up in New York. He's Jewish and he's been really um, bullied and so on. He hates it. And he sort of comes back to New York. He goes to France for the war and stays there and comes back to do this series. And he's like, I'm going to, it's like my revenge. The thing about photography is you get, you really get in there in people's faces. Mm -hmm. It's like to intervene and to show it because the street photography, the the sort of deceit of street photography is that that you don't, you know, you're not, you don't have any, um, uh, people don't even know you're there. You know, you're sort of like this invisible thing. You're not affecting what's going on. And Deanne is in complete contrast to that. Her great, great, like almost pathological desire is to connect with people, whatever, wherever that comes from, somewhere very deep inside. Mm. And beautifully, her daughter, Dune, talks about the aspect of her work where... Um, it's like a secret. She says she'll talk about photographing the people. She goes out and, you know, uses a studio, like a like, you know, street like a studio, and she comes back, but there's... It's hard to explain, but it's like something, a secret transaction has happened. And people talked about Deanne being the most seductive person they'd ever met. She had this extraordinary ability. She'd get in there and just... Because she was so interested in people, so intense. People mm. would get that, this notion of them sort of flowing back towards her. And that, you know, she just had this incredible ability with a lot. Not everyone, not everyone, not everyone loved what Diane was up to. She was a, um, another photographer who's around at the time who's working, he knows her really well. Joel Mayowitz t- um, talks about her afterwards beautifully. But it, one of the things he says about her is that she's like the spider. You know, she's luring everybody into the into her web. Mm. So there is those different aspects of Arbus that are really interesting, which she plays with in the photographs. Yeah, and she. some people have called her work voyeuristic and in some ways kind of encroaching into people's personal space Absolutely. and lives. And, you know, her portraits are very revealing. Often her subjects don't intend to give that much of themselves no, that's right. to her, but somehow they do. Yeah. And that's, I guess, the beauty of her photographs. And can we talk about one of the artists that were first introduced to in this exhibition when you... Um, move into turn I guess you're facing the front and you're turning yes, left I'm left and you see yes. um one of the one great artist who um there's a few of his uh photographs which are really amazing and one of them is listening to Frank Sinatra and there's a girl crying um you know in the midst of obviously a really moving moment listening to Frank Sinatra at the Palace Theatre and it's in, from 1944 And you can see someone's arm around her shoulder. And it seems like it's one of those very spontaneous moments. But, I mean, just how spontaneous were these moments? So the photographer in that case is a guy called Ouija, who's Mm. one of the really great characters. We've got got, um, images and they have a stamp on the back. I'm just trying to think what it says. It's something like Ouija, the greatest photographer in the world or something. He's this (laughs) completely shambolic guy. He... 
uh, just travelled around, often went to crime scenes and so on, was always on the on the streets. So that very sort of spontaneous um, way of working, which Deanne is really interested in. She's she's really connected to her time and because of her privilege, she knows, like she just rings up John Sikowski, who's the curator of um, the photographic um uh, collection at the time at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art. And she's, because she's so privileged, she's just like, oh, you know, hi, John, I'll be in to see you at 11. Great, you know, bye, Deanne. And he's like, oh, who, you know, who, Deanne who? Like, what? Mm-hmm. Anyway, but at a time, at, later on, she works with the Ouija collection. She, when she's sort of towards the end of the 60s, she's going to sort of work on a show that's done. So she's really interested in Ouija, and there's books around, which she would have known his work. And she's interested in how shambolic and she loves she says no one comes close to that sort of way of working so from Ouija she gets this um directness and he also uses the flash which she uses so she's she's really interesting the technology I'm not gonna you know bore everybody hopefully into a coma about talking about cameras but she starts off working like everybody else at the time in a sense working with a Nikon 35 mil it's up at your eye and you can work very much on the hop and it's Ouija would have been using a bigger camera. He's early is using sort of speed graphics like the the one that all the photojournalists are using. But he's got a big flash. Mm. He's sort of flashing in people's faces. One thing that's interesting about using the flash is that and that Deanne picks up on is that, and it's unusual. She sort of says that if she does that, she doesn't. And, and Mayowitz talks about it, one of the great breakthroughs. She can leave people. She doesn't in when she's outside. She doesn't have to turn them away from the sun or into some whatever you do. Mm vague about these things but she says I, I, I leave them and I move myself mm-hmm. so there's this aspect as you were sort of picking up on between of course people know that Ouija's there with his big camera and his flash and so on but also they're sort of unposed there's a, and she picks up on this her style is so distinctive so she goes back in a, 1962 just when our photographs start in the exhibition start to using a medium format camera the beautiful twin um, lens Roly, which is one of Roly flex which is one of one of a lot of people's favorite cameras mm. it's at waist level so she can keep looking at people when she's talking to them when she's photographing you look down it sort of inverts the image was it interesting it slightly abstracts it so, and it's a square format which is very unusual for the time and as the decade as the 60s go on goes on she stops doing any sort of cropping or anything so it's always a square format and the whole frame which does a number of things one it sort of says it's, it's, it's this strange deceit of photography you show the whole thing it's sort of more true mm. this notion that you haven't sort of manipulated it. but of course in photography I mean the minute you decide to shoot this or that you're making that decision anyway so it's not really the world in any case it's already, you know she's already made those decisions but there's a little bit of a trope that if you have the whole thing it's more true and then for her also if you show the whole thing it's saying that she gets close Lizette, Medell, the figures in her, they're very monumental, but yeah. she's staying back and then um, cropping to get those big figures. Mm. Whereas Deanne, by showing the whole thing, is saying, I've got close to these people. I'm having a direct encounter with these people when I'm shooting. And she's, that's what she's interested in. She talks about the gap between intention and effect. Yeah. And it's sort of what you're picking up with Ouija as well. It's this gap between the fact that we always want to look good in the world. We do. You know, we go out there, we've got our face on, we're always trying to look a particular way. And she and Deanne says, well, there's this gap and we don't. And she's interested in that. Mm. So people in hers, they sort of look 
a bedpost. They're sort of connecting to her, but there's also that moment. And she says, I like to come from wrongness. I like to come from awkwardness. So she's picking up too. There's this really interesting thing that happens in her work between a stillness and a, you know, really slowed down, a monumental, you know, a monumental um, aspect that she gets from Lizette. But there's also this snapshot aesthetic that she uses where things just go a bit wrong. People have got things out of the top of their heads or strange things are happening on the edges or it just, you know, and from that she gets a, a sort of snapshot authenticity. It looks like the photographs that you might take in your own family album and she realises mm. that sort of photography has has power, you know, that um, our own sort of vernacular stuff that we make has meaning to us, whereas she thinks probably most people think that art photography's really got nothing to do with them. It's maybe a bit sort of like la-di-da out there, nothing to do with me. Mm. So using that snapshot sort of she feels, and she talks about the, all of her work as the family album, her own family album. So she's sort of connecting. So the other thing about the voyeurism is interesting because I think she is playing with that. She says on another occasion, the camera is cruel. And she says, I think I've got a bit of a cold eye. She knows, and, you know, she knows that the photographer has power. And other people say, are these your friends, Deanne, the people she shoots? And she's like, oh, it's complicated. Not really. She knows some of them for a long time. The boy who's the wonderful giant, image of the giant. She knew him for about 10 years. The Mexican dwarf, Laura Morales, she knows him really well for a number of years. Some people she meets for five minutes. Mm. Bang, bang, bang. So, and it's interesting to look at the contact sheets. A lot of them have been public. It's easy to get hold of them in, in the Revelations catalogue that came out about 15 years ago. You can see a lot of the contact sheets. Often the image she uses is the last one. Like, but, you know, she knows when, despite the fact she can't look at the screen, you know, it's not digital, she yeah. still knows when she's got what she wants. Mm. But sometimes it's one image. Like when she's taking those pro-Vietnam pro boys on the march, one, one, you know, she, her, her eye is so good at that point. She's so across what she's doing as a photographer. She knows, you know, she can get it in one. It's pretty... You know, it's a bit of a, it's a pretty extraordinary thing. Mm. I'm speaking with Anne O'Hare, who is the National Gallery of Australia's curator of photography, and we're talking about Deanne Arbus American Portraits, the exhibition on at the Heidi Museum. Uh, we're going to head to some announcements, and we'll be back to finish our discussion on this fantastic exhibition. So stick around. This is a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're tuned to 3 RFM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. Uh, we're continuing our chat with Anne O'Hare, who is the National Gallery of Australia's curator of photography, and she joins me to talk about the exhibition at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art, Deanne Arbus, American Portraits. And um, let's go into some of the uh, portraits and, I guess, describe... Um, some of their features. So there are a few that really stood out to me um, and were very, uh, I guess they put, they made me feel a bit uncomfortable because it felt like we were coming into someone's very personal space. And um, and in this example, I mean, knowing that Deanne was very privileged and well off, it also does then generate more discomfort, I guess, because some of uh, the photographs are, for example, of um, entitled Large Black Family in Small Shack from 1968, uh, where you can see there's this kind of 
peeling wallpaper on the ceiling. There's a light bulb that's really has a strong glare and there are 18 people in this image crammed into this very small room and it's clear that they're, you know, significantly impoverished. Um, and there are quite a few of those photos that are really... Um, Photographs of of people who are either you know dwarves or um, mentally unwell or significantly impoverished and disadvantaged, and these are people that Deanne is you know perhaps encountering sometimes for the first time and only briefly, and she's really capturing you know a really personal um, moment, perhaps a moment where someone doesn't feel like they have the dignity that they wish they had at that very moment in time. Can you talk more about those particular um, photographs and what makes them special? At times you can see people thinking like, what is this woman up to? There is that sort of suspicion of somebody coming into your home. It's interesting, I was thinking Deanne Arbus, you know, it was very much and I, uh, she was she's an interesting photographer in that the, the 60s is sort of a time when the role of the photographer or the art the way that the photographer thought about it is changing so uh, leading up to that time a lot of photographers a very common way of working was as a photojournalist so you're working for the big picture magazines they were huge and Arbus had been working like that with her husband um, Alan they ran a fashion studio so they were working for Seventeen and Vogue and things like that so she understood that magazine culture and a lot of her images it seems strange now in a way were um, published in magazines so Esquire and so on so that that we've got about four of them which are really extraordinary images she's um, been commissioned to go down to South, South Carolina and photograph uh, a doctor who's working with these very poor black families but she does in a yes it's it's that difficulty with Deanne away she comes from a, she comes from a very privileged background you know her parents run a big department store on Fifth Avenue and she has nannies and all that sort of thing but for her if she doesn't like anyone it's pretty much the other uh you know sort of for people from her own she talks about the hip, hypocritical and the sort of the stuffiness and the American that really drives her bonkers. If she's against anything, it's really against that aspect of fifties and sixties America. And you have to remember it's a time of McCarthyism, and a lot of other people talk about it being the sort of the the, hip, the hypocrisy of the time. The fact that no one is really acknowledging that there's an issue with racism, with gender inequality, with um, people of difference. You know often really struggling mm. um so she's you know she often she photographs transvestites and other people and i says there is a wonderful co- quote about how she feels about people and she says and she says when you meet someone on the street essentially what you notice about them is the floor well i don't know if everybody is like that but it's what deanne is like and she says most people go through life dreading they'll have a traumatic experience which I think she did. Freaks are born with their trauma. She uh, used an unfortunately very un-PC <laughs> word, freaks, but that's how mm. she talks it's her, from her. Um, freaks were born with their tra- trauma. They've already passed their test in life. They're ast- aristocrats. So she has this notion that we're all... She says, it's another quote where she says, you know, the gods have arbitrarily sort of thrown us down on the planet now thing to do is to try to get back to where we really belong, to our true authentic 
way of being. She was just, you know, really interested in that. So these people, people, you know, who are born from it with a physical disability or in some way sort of choose to live outside society, she feels they're the people that she admires, you know, the people who are freer. They've, they, you know, they're not waiting for the you know, the, the the thing to drop on them. It's already happened. Mm. So so it is an, an interesting sort of inversion in a way of, you know, mostly you'd say, well, if you're privileged and so on, blah, blah, blah. but she just felt she hated her upbringing. She sort of felt that she was like this little princess in a fairy tale, you know, and she's very interested in myth as well. So, you know, myth is often full of, and fairy tales of the giants and, the, you know, those sorts of figures. She feels that they exist further out in the universe than we do, that they've experienced more, they've, you know, they've sort of, you know, that's that, I guess, that notion. And she was very interested in Zen Buddhism and things like that as well. Some of the notebooks are full of just her reading in sort of Eastern esoteric things. Yep. That, you know, that life is... Uh, uh, you know, being you know having difficult experiences in life is what life's about in a sense. I think um, they ask Alan Arbus, her husband, you know, she, she breaks up with him, but for, you know she was married to him, and he's. She, they say to Alan, "What's the most extraordinary thing about Diane?" Would you say? And she says, "It's her courage, the fact that she was quite withdrawn, quiet sort of person, but that she." felt this some 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 sort of extraordinary deep need to go out and connect i think she sort of says sometimes i mean it's a bit confusing too because she thinks very very deeply about photography and the the medium and the style that she's using and what photography is in a you know really extraordinary way she definitely changes the landscape of photography Mm. but she says something like you know the encounter that the the the, what what's in the image for me is more important than the image in the sense that it's that encounter for her whatever happens in that moment of connection and you're right sometimes it's an awkward moment and people going like what the hell does she want from me because it's Mm. that thing with the photography you know and probably people weren't that the people she was photographed but no one was really interested in them they weren't famous i mean she did photograph famous people she worked for magazines and she also realises that you've often got to spend time to get a good image. So she'd turn up at nine in the morning to celebrate, you know, to, to, to see someone, to, you know, photograph them. And, you know, at five in the evening, they'd just go like, right, oh, look, you know, Jan, we're just exhausted. You, you've yeah. just got to go. And virtually as the door was closing, she's sort of snapping around the edge of it, you know, mm. because she realised that you need time for people to, to drop that mask, to drop that. She said famous people are f- covered in shellac. I can't, I'm just not that interested because they've got their photographic face that she yeah. can't break through. Jermaine Greer is photographed by her in the 70s and talk, I mean, my late 60s and talks really interestingly, like hated the experience. Two, t- you know, two sort of full-on tough women, you know, yeah. meeting. And she said, you know, she tried to make me cry. I wasn't going to. She was just really, irri- she's still going on about it. Bloody hell. You know, just let it go. <laughs> But, you know, she was, you know, she sort of talks about how manipulative Mm. Deanne was. And there's no doubt that that there's that aspect of her work. And I think she plays, she's very aware of it. Yeah. uh, But it's not like, oh, I didn't realise. You know, she plays little games. She always seems to be weighed down by the cameras and she says to people, oh, I'm just a little student. And, you know, which button do I press? Like she sort of uses this way of being, which is partly not completely contrived. She, you know, she knew how to, what she wanted and how to photograph, but she wasn't hugely technical in that way that other people were. Mm. She often, and her prints are really interesting. It's a, one of the you know, really great 
reason to get down to Heidi to see this show if you can because they'll go back to Canberra and they'll, you know, rest for quite a long while. The prints have this... And you've seen the show yeah, that yeah. Uh, they have a power, they don't do. they? I mean, everybody yeah. in that show has a power in different ways. Mm. But the Arbuses are like being... I remember the first Arbus I saw and I I was just gobsmacked by it. I just was... I, I was a bit outraged. I was like, how could somebody let themselves be photographed and look like this? You know, yeah. so for me, my immediate reaction was that. Mm. And I don't think... And, and people... She's in a very big landmark show um, in 1967 called New Documents and... I always tell the story. I know it's a bit scurrilous of me, but people would go to that show and they'd spit on her photographs. You know, there was they, she was doing something that people didn't like, particularly at that time. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, so you know, they, they are they are powerful images. They are hugely powerful. I think it's a great point that you need to see them in person to really you do understand it's their they're power. Very particular prints, and yeah. they they they've got the hand. They're all printed by her. Mm. They're they're they, and you can feel Arbus in them almost. Yeah. You know, she's haunting that those images it's quite they're they're extraordinary don't forget them yeah thank you Anne, for coming in to talk about this because it is a fascinating um exhibition and really great that it has all those other uh photographers in there that were um influencing deanne at the time yeah it's Um, great to do that it's not often done with arbus so people who you're working with her is is it adds to her greatness in a way yeah. it sort of you know explains a little bit and yes you, you sort of get you realize how wonderful she is in that context of mm. other great photographers so so everyone needs to head on down to the Heidi Museum of Modern Art it's on till June the 17th and uh, it's put together by the National Gallery of Australia I have been talking with Anne and um, and she is the curator of photography at the National Gallery of Australia. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM. That's it for today's show. And I want to thank our guests who joined me uh, today. We had Tom Greenwell, James Watson, uh, Danielle Claude, and of course, Anne O'Hare. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.